Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So if you're following along in your pew Bibles, that's page 817. Second Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. May, may God bless the reading of his word. Um, I'll now hand the time off to Jeff. Thanks, Janet. Morning. Morning. You pray with me. Father God, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Lord. Lord, this morning we pray that uh, your word would speak to us, that it would comfort us, I would convict us, Lord, that it would guide us uh, in our walk with you, Lord, and we pray that your word would also guide us as a congregation, as uh, one church, as one body of Christ uh, in our walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was in elementary school, I had a few close friends. Uh, these were the friends that I would eat lunch with, play basketball with, you know, just hang out with after school. And one day during recess, a bunch of us were playing kickball. And I remember lining up, and it was my turn at bat. And so the pitcher rolled the ball towards me, and, and I wound up my leg, and I kicked it hard. And the moment that I saw the ball sail far, I took off towards first base. My friend was guarding first base at the time. And as I sprinted head-on towards first base, I ended up knocking him down. Now, he was okay, but later that day, I found out that his cousin, who was also part of our friend group, had turned the entire group against me. You know, neither my friend nor his cousin nor anyone in the group would talk to me. You know, they wouldn't eat with me. They wouldn't play with me during recess. You know, even after I apologized to my friend, even his cousin, they wouldn't forgive me. I felt awful. I, I felt distraught. I was ostracized, not knowing when or if I would ever be allowed back into this group. You know, it took a long time before these relationships were mended. You know, as, as now I'm older, it, it, it seems that the, the situation is a little bit less significant, but how many of you have felt this way before? You know, you've done wrong, you, you repented, and, you know, that person still doesn't forgive you. It's not a nice feeling, is it? You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you have been on the other side? You haven't forgiven someone who has hurt you, 
or someone close to you even when they repented. You know, they, they, they want to have an honest conversation with you. They want to reconcile with you. But you ignore them. You avoid them. Maybe you even harbor deep feelings of resentment, bitterness. You hold a grudge against them. Now, our pastor today talks about why we must forgive those who repent. Now, before we dive into answering this question of why we must forgive those who repent, now, let's take a look at the background of Paul's letter. And why does he write our passage for today? Now, what situation is he talking about? Who is he referring to? Now, I've asked a few people to help us visualize what's going on. So can I have you guys just come up here from wherever you guys are sitting? <laughs> We're dealing with a couple of different locations here and a few characters to work with. And this is just to help us visualize what, what's going on, what, what's leading to this passage. So we'll say that the, the right side of the stage is going to be Ephesus, since it's in the east. And the left side of the stage is going to be Corinth, since it's in the west, as you can see on the map. And then we'll just say that the center of the stage is going to be Macedonia, just around these, these chairs. And uh, we have Terry, who's going to be Paul, because obviously he's the most qualified. There's <laughs> Mikey, who is uh, going to be Timothy. Uh, Mark is going to be Titus. Uh, Sam is going to be the offending brother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joseph and Morris are going to be the church, uh, the Corinthian church. So to, to set the scene, Paul right now is in Ephesus. Um, Timothy and Titus are just kind of at the side. And then the offending brother in the Corinthian church are in Corinth. Uh, so Paul has just written 1 Corinthians, and, and the letter was already delivered. And now Paul sends Timothy uh, to the Corinthian church to kind of check up on them. Timothy, when he arrives, discovers that the church is in turmoil. There is a point to arrive, the church is a mess. <laughs> so Timothy ends up bringing the bad news back to Paul. You guys following along? <laughs> so when Paul hears about this, he immediately drops his plans travels to Corinth to resolve some of these issues. <laughs> this is him walking on water across the sea. So when he gets there, <laughs> he finds there's a rebellion against his apostolic authority, you know, led by the offending brother, the guy in our passage today. We can't, we can't say for sure who this guy was because Paul doesn't name him, but we know that you know, he's causing dissension in the church. He might have been living in the sin, and the church was supporting him in this, and many of the church members sided with him in this rebellion. So you guys can give him a high five or something. Uh, so Paul, Paul gets rejected by the church in this offending brother. He gets kicked out. He leaves with his tail between his legs. <laughs> so Paul leaves, and when he returns, he writes the painful letter, uh, sometimes called the letter of tears. And this letter of tears was uh, meant to strongly rebuke the Corinthian church. And this time, he doesn't send Timothy, he sends Titus. And we'll call him his hitman. Uh, this is the guy that uh, is supposed to deliver this message to rebuke the church, to correct the church, to teach him. When Titus gets, <laughs> when Titus gets there, he's surprised to see that the church has received it so well. You know, they recognize their wrongdoing. They repent. You know, they even carry out the punishment of, of this offending brother. Uh, this punishment was a form of church discipline. 
that led to his exclusion from the church community. So, so they kicked out the offending brother for the purposes of his own repentance. Uh, so you can go over there, offending brother. Uh, uh, so this is so that the, tr- uh, the offending brother would repent, recognize his wrongdoing, turn back to the Lord. And Titus uh, stays there for a while, addresses some of the issues, and he eventually leaves the Corinthian church and meets Paul in Macedonia, around here, uh, where Paul receives the good news. So Paul rejoices. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And he sends Titus back to Corinth with this letter. Now, in this letter, he addresses the issue of the offending brother. Uh, Paul learns from Titus, who stayed in Corinth for a while, that the church had punished the offending brother, as, as Paul had told them to do. Um, but they were still punishing him after he repented. The church had gone a little bit overboard uh, in their discipline. So, Paul writes our passage today to tell the Corinthian church to forgive, comfort, and love this brother again. You guys are done. <laughs> Thank you. Let's give them a round of applause. So, Paul, as I said, is writing our passage today, urging the Corinthian church to forgive this brother. Now today, I want to go over four main points with you. The first point is that forgiveness follows repentance. You can follow this along in your bulletin outline. Forgiveness follows repentance. In verse 6, it says that the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. And Paul had called on the Corinthian church to punish this offending brother. But Paul never punishes for the sake of punishment. Now, for Paul, the punishment was purposeful. There was a redemptive value to it. And it was so that the offending brother would recognize his sin. It, would, it was so that he would recognize the division that he was causing, the sin he was living in. He would turn back to the Lord. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority was sufficient because it, says, it accomplished what it set out to do, which was to bring the offending brother to repentance. And now that the offending brother had repented, forgiveness must follow. Now, forgiveness cannot occur without repentance. In fact, uh, forgiveness is conditional upon repentance. True forgiveness demands true repentance. Let me tell you why. There's an article written recently by Kevin DeYoung that talked about two kinds of forgiveness. Therapeutic forgiveness and true forgiveness, as I call it. Therapeutic forgiveness is one-sided. It's what popular psychology tells us forgiveness is. It's how some of us may think forgiveness is. You know, therapeutic forgiveness is telling your friend who's just been hurt in a relationship, just forgive and forget. You know, don't let it consume you. It's telling your friend, you know, don't let that guy or that girl or that person live rent-free in your head. It's telling them, you know, just forgive them and move on. Being bitter or angry or or resentful, holding a grudge, doesn't help you. It doesn't matter whether that person has confessed their sin to you or repented or even knows about what they did wrong. Therapeutic forgiveness at its core is self-serving. 
It's a feeling. We define therapeutic forgiveness as a feeling. It's what you can do so that you can feel better. There's no need for you know, two parties to work it out. Therapeutic forgiveness is not what God calls us toward. Rather, He calls us toward uh, true forgiveness, to offer true forgiveness. So while therapeutic forgiveness is one-sided, true forgiveness is two-sided. Forgiveness follows repentance. And true forgiveness demands true repentance. And we see that in the text today. And Paul calls the church to bring the offending brother back into fellowship. And to forgive him because the punishment achieved its purpose. His repentance. And Jesus says in Matthew 18.15 that if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. To put it even more specifically, uh, in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and and says, I repent, forgive him. (coughs) True forgiveness is two-sided. Repentance on the one hand, Forgiveness on the other. You know, I know our tendency is toward therapeutic forgiveness. I've seen myself saying some of these therapeutic phrases before. But if we choose to do this, you know, it doesn't follow God's model of forgiveness. Because true forgiveness models God's forgiveness. In Colossians 3.13 it says, uh, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As we think about God's forgiveness, as we say today, we think, you know, how has He forgiven us? We know that He's done it through Christ. But we also know that His forgiveness requires our repentance. Am I right? There needs to be a recognition of the need for forgiveness. Uh, We can't keep sinning without repenting. And expect forgiveness from Him, can we? In the same way for us, forgiveness requires repentance. But what happens when the person doesn't repent? If the person doesn't want to repent, if the person doesn't know that he or she did something wrong. Does that give us free license to be bitter or or hateful or resentful, to, to hold a grudge against this person? No. And when we think of therapeutic forgiveness, therapeutic forgiveness equates being bitter with not forgiving. To say that, um, you know, if if you don't forgive, that means that you're allowed to, to be bitter or you will be bitter. But true forgiveness separates the two. You know, if the person doesn't repent, that doesn't mean we can be bitter. And Jesus said to even love your enemies. So while we wait for repentance, we should desire forgiveness. While we wait for repentance, we should desire forgiveness. We should have this attitude of forgiveness, one that is merciful, one that is loving towards that person. We should always be ready to forgive. That offer of forgiveness should always be on the table. Just as God is always ready to forgive us when we approach Him in repentance. So the first point was that 
Forgiveness follows repentance. And knowing that, we see the second point, which is that forgiveness leads to reconciliation. In verse 7 and 8, it says, Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. And because true forgiveness is two-sided, true forgiveness brings two parties together to mend a broken relationship. And when Paul calls the church, the Corinthian church, to comfort the offending brother, it's the same word used multiple times in in chapter 1. It has the idea of encouraging and supporting him, of building him up in his faith. Yet there's also a very narrow sense of the word that can mean to conciliate or to, to reconcile. And again, true forgiveness models God's forgiveness. And not only does God's forgiveness require repentance, but God's forgiveness also reconciles us to Him. Later in, in this letter, Paul writes in chapter 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, what does this look like for a church? Because in the context of this passage, it's church discipline. You know, recently some of you may be aware of a, of a popular pastor who was accused of plagiarism in his book, among other things. In the weeks following, this pastor wrote a letter of apology to his church, recognizing his wrongdoing and, and kind of uh, mentioning some concrete steps uh, that he would take for discipline. Now, some people are arguing that you know, his rep- repentance isn't sincere because he keeps doing it over and over again or, or whatever. Uh, and I think that's up for debate. I don't know this situation. But let's say, let's say for our case that his repentance is sincere. What then should that church do? You know, they should forgive him, they should comfort him, love him, reconcile with him. And for some of us, and some of us may have been hurt by a church or a small group, maybe a family member or a spouse even has hurt us and sinned against us. Maybe some of us has, have friends who gossiped about us and, and said negative things. Maybe some of us have friends who just hurt us in, in one way or another. And we're called to forgive, to reconcile a broken relationship. That broken relationship may be between a church and a pastor, a small group and a small group member, a fellowship and a church member or a husband and a wife or, or two friends. But we forgive because we want to lead to reconcile a broken relationship just as Christ reconciled the broken relationship between God and us. So the first point was that forgiveness follows repentance. The second point was that forgiveness leads to reconciliation. But what if we say, you know, I can't forgive them. You know, that person has hurt me too much. That person has hurt someone I love too much. 
You know, I can't forgive them. Even if they came to me and said, I'm sorry. Even if they came to me and said, I, I want to talk about this. I want to have this honest conversation. I can't. I can't forgive them. The third point today is that when we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt them. We hurt the individual. <coughs> Verse 7 says, You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What does he mean by excessive sorrow? I mean, there's a good kind of sorrow, sorrow a godly sorrow, that leads to repentance. That was the purpose of the punishment. Uh, when the offending brother was excluded by the church community, you know, that was a big deal for them. You know, I don't think we practice much church discipline today, but you know, if we were, if we were to exclude someone for the purpose of repentance, they could easily just go down to another church down the street. No, no repentance needed, no accountability needed. The offending brother didn't really have that opportunity. And so when the offending brother repented and the Corinthian church still kept up with this punishment, kind of going overboard, think of what it might have felt for this guy. Kind of like how I kind of felt uh, when I apologized to my friend and the cousin in that group and they still didn't forgive me. And Paul feels for this guy, which is why he tells the Corinthian church to welcome him back to embrace him, to encourage him, to love him again. Or else he's afraid the offending brother might go from godly sorrow to this sort of excessive sorrow, this sort of despair, perhaps even leaving the church, leaving his faith. When we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt the individual. And they may leave to go to another church, especially without any accountability, without any assurance of our love for them, or worse, our refusal to accept their repentance might be a witness against our faith. It might cause them to stop believing. They or even others around them may think, you Christians preach about forgiveness and repentance all the time. You say that God forgave you. Now you refuse to forgive your brother or your sister. No, I don't want anything to do with this. The third point was that when we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt the individual, we hurt them. We'll also see the fourth point, which is that when we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt our community, we hurt our church, we hurt our congregation. Verse 10 and 11 says, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. Would I have forgiven if there was anything to forgive? <coughs> I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Why does Paul say, for your sake? You know, this is the brother that led this rebellion against Paul's apostolic authority and kicked him out of the church, as you just saw in, the, in that brief miming done by uh, our brothers today. And Paul could have easily not forgiven him. He could have easily let that punishment continue. But he recognizes that 
You know, this brother's sin didn't grieve him so much as it, it grieved all of them, the Corinthians, this church. This is, this is from verse 5. In the same way, Paul recognizes that when the church fails to forgive this brother after he repents, they hurt their community. Paul let them know, you know, hey, I've forgiven them for your sake. You should too. It's for your sake that I have forgiven them so that you don't hurt your community. How might they do so? Paul writes in verse 11 that forgiveness is needed so that Satan might not outwit them, for they're not unaware of his schemes. When, talk, but when Paul talks about being outwitted by Satan, this word has a sense of being robbed of a member. That is, a believer becoming an unbeliever. And for Paul, that was what Paul was worried about, that this guy would go from godly sorrow to excessive sorrow and leave the church, leave the faith. It would hurt their witness, would hurt the unity of the church. Now, even if for us, the person who we don't want to forgive is a strong Christian, that doesn't mean Satan is not at work. It doesn't mean that we can say, oh, if we don't forgive them, they'll still believe so that we don't have to forgive them. It can be easy for our hurt to turn into hostility. It can be easy for our hurt to turn into hostility. It can be easy for our refusal to forgive to hurt others around us. The Corinthian church had a huge problem with unity. How easy it is for Satan to come in to cause dissension, to pit brother against brother, sister against sister, brother against sister in the church. Jesus prayed for the unity of believers in John 17. How ironic it is to see believers in the church today, maybe in our church today, with broken relationships and unforgiveness in our hearts. Now to illustrate this, I'm sure most of you have seen the Avengers, right? Yes. In one of the scenes, if you might remember, Loki, the bad guy, has just been taken captive. And he's aboard the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. He's in prison. And the Avengers have taken Loki's scepter and they're in one of the rooms discussing just how to approach Loki, how to approach the whole situation. At the beginning of the scene, if you might remember, the, the scepter is on the table. Uh, and the blue light emanating from it begins to give off this high-pitched sound, almost as if it was creating a, a field of some sort. You begin to notice that their conversation turns into more of an argument. The characters become actually quite out of character. You have Captain America and Iron Man picking a fight against, uh, picking a fight with each other. Captain America says, you know, back off. And then Iron Man says, you know, I'm starting to want you to make me. You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. And then Captain America comes back and says, you know, put on the suit. Let's go a few rounds. And then you have Thor in the corners going, Oh, 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 you people are so petty and tiny. And the argument escalates. And Bruce Banner consciously picks up the scepter as he just begins to become more frustrated and angry. Loki's plan was to divide and conquer. Loki makes Iron Man suspicious of S.H.I.E.L.D., the good guys. 
He unsettles Bruce Banner by hinting at the fact that the prison that Loki was in was actually meant for Bruce or, or the Hulk. And throughout this whole scene, you see dissension, uh, division, disunity. That was Loki's plan of attack. And Paul mentions here that Satan's plan in this situation isn't, isn't too different. Which is why Paul urges the Corinthian church to forgive, to reconcile with this offending brother who has repented. You know, Paul didn't want to see this brother lose his faith. He didn't want to see this Corinthian church in disunity, in division. Let's not give Satan a foothold in our relationships. Let's not give Satan a foothold in our fellowships, in our small groups, in our church, by refusing to forgive those who repent. When we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt the individual, we hurt them, and our community. Forgiveness isn't an easy thing. C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful thing until we have to practice it. We can't expect forgiveness for us to always be this one-time act and then relationships are completely restored again without any sense of consequence. But forgiveness is an attitude, a mindset. It's a process. It's going to take time. It'll take work. But when those people who hurt us, when they come to us and they want to talk, when they come to us and they repent, when they say, I'm sorry, when they try to reconcile with us, we must forgive. Otherwise, we demean the very forgiveness that Christ first offered us. Think about your relationships today. Has someone hurt you? Has a church hurt you? Has a small group hurt you? Has a friend, a spouse, a family member hurt you? Has someone hurt someone you loved? Or maybe you're on the other end. You know, for whatever reason, they, someone has hurt you. And I know it's tough. It's tough to forgive. But we forgive because Christ forgave us. So today, I encourage you to think about your relationships, to reflect on the people in your life. If you have sinned against someone, if you have wronged someone, I encourage you to find them, to talk to them, and repent. If someone has sinned against you, maybe they don't know it. Maybe they need you to go and let them know first. But if they do know, they come to you and they want to have an honest conversation of repentance and reconciliation. If they want to sort out this mess, forgive them. Because when we fail to forgive those who repent, we hurt the individual, we hurt them, and we hurt our church, we hurt our community. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, first and foremost, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your offer of forgiveness, which is always there. We thank you that you are always there with your grace and your mercy, Lord. We know that we can't keep sinning. That when we come, when we 
are sanctified when we come and approach you in repentance with, with a sense of godly sorrow, Lord, you are there to forgive us. And so I pray that we also might be able to replicate and to imitate uh, that loving kindness, that sense of forgiveness toward those who have hurt us, toward those who have come to us, Lord. That we would not just reject them and, and push them away, Lord. But that we would also work at it. That we would work towards forgiveness, work towards reconciliation, Lord. And so I pray for our congregation, or I pray for our church to, today, Lord, that if there is any broken relationships, or if there is any bitterness, if there's any resentment, any, any uh, grudges, Lord, would you take those from us, Lord? Would, you, would your spirit come in and unify our church, unify the members of our church, so that we can truly be one body of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.